Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. Happy Resurrection Day today. I, I do want to say again, thank you for your prayers for Terry. As you can tell, this has been a very, very serious situation. And we're just so thankful that the Lord's hand was on her and she's recovering. I want to get right into the word this morning. I told the kids that this is probably the longest message I've ever prepared. I've got eight pages of notes, and it's usually no more than six. So I'm going to try to get through it because I feel like this is what the Lord gave me. And we're going to look at three different aspects of the resurrection. And I also want to say, I'm so appreciative and I was so moved by the reading of the scripture that Don did at the very first, because I'm not covering any of the crucifixion at all. And he read the entire story in just a couple of minutes this morning. Isn't that amazing? I didn't know he was going to do that. And he doesn't, didn't know what my message was. So the Lord knew. Amen. I want to talk first about the Passover and the church. You may wonder, well, what, is the, what does the Passover have to do with the church today? And we want to look at that. <clears throat> In the New Testament, most of the early church members were Jewish. So they continued to observe the Passover feast as they always had before they came to Christ. And the customs and the stories that were handed down generationally about how God miraculously delivered the Jews from the Egyptian bondage were still very real in their lives. They made it a part of their lives. And you recall that in that story in Exodus, <clears throat> that the death angel was the tenth plague that God had sent to the Egyptian Pharaoh to convince him to let the Israelites go and let them get out of bondage from Egypt. But God made a way for the Jews. Even though Pharaoh refused, God made a way for the Jews to escape the death angel by putting the blood of a lamb over their doorpost and their lintels, which are the, actually I think the lintel is the one that goes across the top and the doorposts are the ones that go down. And God told Moses, tell the people, kill the lamb. And, and you had to treat the lamb exactly like he said. Anyway, to treat the lamb exactly how he said to do it and to put that blood over the doorpost and the lintel. And every house that had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, the death angel passed over. That's how we got the word, the Passover. But God also required some personal purging at the time of the Passover. For he told the, the, the Jews, he required of them to purge their homes from the leaven, the thing that represented sin, because it was the yeast or the baking powder that they would put in their bread dough, and it causes it to give that rise. But God said, for me, that represents yeast, excuse me, that represents 
represents sin. So for the Passover period, get the sin out of your homes. Purge it and cleanse it and do a deep spring cleaning and get that out of there. So that was what they were required to do because it represented sin. After Paul the Apostle had his encounter with Jesus Christ in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, what did he tell the church at Corinth? Paul said to the church, these are Christians, they're new Christians in God, in Jesus. He said, purge the church of the leaven that's in the church. Get the sin out of the church. There's no place for sin to be in the church. And Paul had been told about a man who was committing a gross sin in their church. Not only did he say to get it out of the church, but he told the people to disassociate from him, do not have fellowship with this person committing this sin because it could taint them as well. But he said, put them out of fellowship for a time and give God the opportunity to work on his heart and bring him back into fellowship. And that's exactly what happened later on. Paul said he's been disassociated now. He's come back to his senses. He's repented of his sin. So bring him back into the fellowship without the leaven, without the sin. Paul was admonishing to purge each one's heart as well as the church as a whole. And as a matter of fact, that's what the whole chapter is all about. Paul was consulted about that man and what should they do? And this was the advice that he gave. Paul said, there's nothing wrong with keeping the Passover, but you cannot keep the old leaven or that sin among them, neither the leaven of malice or wickedness of any kind. But he said to celebrate the Passover with unleavened bread. That's how you get crackers or flat bread. You don't put any leavening in it. And that represented the sin. But Paul said instead, celebrate the Passover with the sinless bread of sincerity of heart and truth. And we know how the change happened from the days of the, of the Jews and the Passover time to the church age. And that was when, of course, there had to be a ransom paid for the cost of that sin, for man to be released from the bondage of that old leaven of sin and put on the unleavened, sinless Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and who gave himself a ransom for all. It was a heavy price to pay for the redemption of all mankind. The next thing I want to look at is the mock trial. 
After Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was given a mock trial. What is a mock trial? It's a pretend. It's something that goes through the motion, but there's no meat there. There's no substance there. There may not even have been a crime there, and there certainly was not in the case of Jesus. It was all fabricated. And in this case, we could easily say that the ruling justice system sorely failed in its mission. They called evil good and good evil. They even condemned the wrong man. They condemned the innocent, holy, just man, and they let the criminal go free. These judges were corrupt and motivated by Satan and the evil that they concocted among themselves to put Jesus to death. If you would turn to Psalm 82, I've been reading this every day and praying this as a prayer. I read about this particular psalm. This psalm is where God is sitting upon his judgment seat in heaven, and he is judging earthly judges. He's not judging the courts of heaven. He's judging earthly judges. And what does it say? God, the righteous judge, God himself is holding court. And in this courtroom, God is adjudicating or giving judgment on the earthly judges. And he says, how long will you continue to hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? His instructions were to give justice to the poor and to the orphan and rightly uphold the rights of the oppressed. And then God states the charges. He says, but these oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. Does it sound familiar to what we're seeing going on today? Yes, it does. Ungodly, unrighteous judgments being handed down. But then, God has the last say, don't you know? And in Psalm 94, verses 20 through 22, the righteous judge gives his summation. He says, can unjust judges claim that God is on their side? Leaders whose decrees permit injustice, they gang up against the righteous and they condemn condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord is my fortress. My God is the mighty rock where I hide. God will turn the sins of evil people back on them. He will destroy them and their sin. The Lord God, the Lord our God, will destroy them. Jesus was subject to these ignorant, wicked judges as the Lord labeled them. And he had to die a brutal, cruel, humiliating death at their hand on an old rugged cross. We mourn his death. 
Just as we do today, if we lose a loved one, we mourn their loss, but we recoil at the injustice and the brutality that was perpetrated upon Jesus Christ. I want to look at the third part of my message this morning, the resurrection itself. We do mourn the death of Jesus and we recognize the horrible price that he paid. But the celebration is in the resurrection, not in the crucifixion. It was in the power of God that he gave to Jesus to overcome death and all that he had been subject to. Jesus himself said that the Son of Man has to die, but in three days he will be raised again, and the celebration is in the resurrection. Last week we talked about Jesus raising the dead here on earth before his crucifixion, but today we celebrate the resurrection of the glorified Christ, our overcoming Savior. I want to look at a few points of interest about the resurrection that solidify this event as the singularly most important fact upon which everything else that we believe is founded. Josh McDowell, who was a loudly self-proclaimed atheist prior to researching the the resurrection of Jesus in an effort to prove it false, has authorized a hundred, excuse me, authored 150 books on the facts about the resurrection. He said that in all of history, there's not a better documented event than the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle had a similar experience. He was born about the same time as Jesus. Paul was born in the year 4 B.C., and Jesus was born between the years 4 and 6 B.C. Now, I'm going to say right there, you may think, she's got her math all messed up. I don't. I researched this. And it says that our calendar that uses A.D. and B.C. is off by two to three years, and it's been per perpetuated this way down through history. So Jesus was not born in year zero or one. He was actually born between four and six before he was born. So um, there you go. It it really, look it up for yourselves. You'll find it. It's very uh, well known. So while Paul and Jesus were contemporaries, Paul never met Jesus prior to the crucifixion. Yet three times in the book of Acts, Paul recites his encounters with Jesus and the visions that he had of Jesus after his resurrection. And in all of these accounts, there is not one contradiction. I want to give six reasons why the resurrection has been proven as fact. One, The seal was broken. When they put the stone in front of the tomb, there was a seal placed upon that tomb, and it was broken. 
You can find this in Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. Jesus was in a borrowed tomb. He didn't have family claim to the tomb, so there was no family crest or name upon it, because after all, he was only going to need it for a couple of days. He didn't need a tomb for long-term storage, if you will. The Romans were afraid that one, Jesus might rise from the dead, just like he said, because they'd proven, he had proven everything else he had said to be fact. But they were also afraid that the disciples would try to steal the body. So they set the stone in place. They sealed it with the seal of the high priest or the ruler who gave them the permission to put a 40-man guard stationed in front of the stone that covered the opening to the tomb. The seal likely would have been ropes cordoning off the, uh, the area where the tomb was so that it would be very apparent to the guards if anyone tried to breach that seal. Number two, the tomb was empty. The best depiction of this story is found in Luke 24. The women went to the tomb to prepare the body as Don read this morning and many others, but Peter and John were the ones that ran all the way back to the tomb and when Peter went inside, remember Don read, John looked and saw it's empty. But Peter went inside and he said, where has he gone? He's not here. But Jesus was well known in the area. The tomb was well known. It was well known that Jesus was going to be put in that tomb. And there have been many verifiable, hostile people writing that they knew of the tomb, they knew Jesus was there, and they knew he wasn't after the third day. Now you can imagine friends and family writing, oh, I saw him, and we have evidence of this all throughout the Bible. But history proves by people who were not Christians did not believe that the tomb was empty. And more importantly than all of those things, a dead body was never found. There was never a time when they said, oh, we have found him. This is where they put him. No. I also want to say that when Peter went in and he saw the burial cloths laid the way they were, it was a message to him. And I'll get to that in just a minute. The stone was removed, and this is found in Matthew 28. The stone is estimated to weigh more than two tons, or 4,500 plus pounds. It took a strong angel to move the stone. The angel had to get past the 40 guards and the seal to move the stone and moving it caused a great earthquake. I love that the Bible says that the angel, once he moved the stone, was sitting on top of the stone, just looking around like, well, what are you guys gonna do now? Can you imagine? Number four, 
some of the Roman guards abandoned their post. Matthew 28, 11, whether they were found sleeping or whether they were running away to tell the magistrates in the city what had happened, either way, history records this, that it's a dereliction of duty of the guards to have left their post for any reason, and it is punishable by death. And that particular death for dereliction of duty is to be hung upside down and set afire and burned alive. Number five, the hidden message in the grave clothes in John 27. After seeing the stone rolled away, Peter and John entered the tomb and saw the headcloth folded, laying aside or apart from the rest of the linen burial cloths. It's said that the headcloth was most likely a prayer shawl because that was the custom of burial in the day. The person's headcloth would be used to wrap their uh, prayer shawl, would be used to wrap their head. And then more absorbent type cloths would be used to wrap the body. And that's why when Peter and John went into the tomb, or Peter went in and John saw it, the Bible says their faith was greatly bolstered by what they'd seen because they knew the message that it meant for them to see that headcloth or prayer shawl lying folded where it was. The reason for this is because in Jewish customs, when the master of the house has finished their meal, they fold, excuse me, I have that backwards. When they have finished their meal, they do not fold their napkin, they just lay it on the table. And that's a sign to the servants, take my place away, I'm all done. But if he gets interrupted in his meal and is coming back to the table, he folds the napkin and he lays it carefully at his place so the servants know, don't touch his place, he's coming back, he's not finished. So when John and Peter saw the folded napkin, they knew he had come back. He wasn't finished and yes, he came back. And number six, the number six reason Jesus' appearance after the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul confirms that Jesus was seen by over 500 people at one time, and then many more in different places in addition to the 500. In a court case, a single witness in any case is rather weak. But 600 witnesses brings a strength and is irrefutable evidence to the matter. And maybe the most incredible aspects about these witnesses is that not one single witness ever has been documented as having changed or renounced their story of having seen Jesus. Can you imagine not one ever changed their story. 
Chuck Colson, who was named as one of the Watergate Seven, I'm getting ready to close in a few minutes, and the first one to be imprisoned after the Watergate trial, came to faith in Christ precisely because of these six reasons that I just read. He wrote 30 books about his faith, and he established the greatest prison ministry ever known in this country. And he wrote these words, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How, you ask? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and for 40 years, not one of them ever changed or denied their story. Though they were beaten, tortured, stoned, imprisoned, and eventually killed, not one ever recanted. They wouldn't have, couldn't have endured all of that if it were not true. But in Watergate, 12 of the most powerful men in the world couldn't keep their story straight for three weeks during the trial. You cannot tell me that the 12 apostles kept their story straight for 40 years and then died for it and it not be true. It's just not possible, said Chuck Colson. In John 12, verses 27 through 29, Jesus said these words, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there that day and heard it said that they heard thunder and others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. For now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death that he would die. For this cause came I to this hour, for this death and for this resurrection. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are you saying some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead. For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would be all lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. 
But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead, as you say. Verse 16. And Paul repeats again what he said in verse 14. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sin. Verse 18. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, these are Paul's words, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, Paul says, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, but everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection, Paul says. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. For he left his napkin folded. The resurrection was astounding and truly miraculous of all of its elements. But the bottom line is, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would have no hope. But as Paul said, you can take it to the bank because the fact is that Jesus was the first to be resurrected. This morning, we hold these communion elements in recognition of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. We take this bread as his broken body, and this is unleavened bread, as his broken body that was the price to be paid for our redemption, for our healing, and our eternal life with him. Will you take it now with me? And we take this cup as the blood that poured from Jesus' side left the hole that he said, Thomas, put your hand right here and see. And that was the purchase price paid in full when he shed his blood for our sins to be fully removed. Will you take it now? And will you stand? Will you just commit in prayer now, once more, that you believe in the resurrection? That you believe it was true and real just as the Bible declares it to be? And don't be one of those that says, oh, there was no resurrection. For you have no hope if you don't believe.
Lord Jesus, we do believe that you were resurrected from the dead, the first one, Lord, of the harvest that is to come, of those saints resurrected from the dead when you return. And we fully accept, Lord, that we too have this hope of resurrection should we go by the grave because you were the first. And the Bible says there has to be this order. First you and then us. We thank you, Lord, for this beautiful resurrection day to celebrate what you have done for us. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you go with each one of us with this word resounding in our heart. We thank you, O oh God, once again for touching and healing Terry and Evan this, this week, Lord, for keeping them safe under your care and your protection. And God, we ask that you give them supernatural strength as their bodies recover. And we ask, oh God, that your hand of mercy and protection go from this place with us, each one, Lord, as we go from here, knowing in our hearts that there was a resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus and that we too have this hope of resurrection in the rapture of the church for those who are alive and in the resurrection of the dead that happens just before those who are alive and remain are caught up to meet you in the air. Father, we thank you today and we do recognize this wonderful day to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. In Jesus' name we ask, amen and amen.